0: And in view of the fact you probably closed your Bibles, would you open them again to Second Kings chapter five and verses 15 through 27, the second half of this chapter, one focusing upon uh, Naaman, um, even in the first part of this second section, but the focus is upon Naaman, and the, second, and, the, and the other focus, the second half, on Gehazi. And the title of the sermon is, perhaps not unexpectedly or surprisingly, The Maintenance of Grace and the Mutilation of Grace. Or The Maintenance and Mutilation of Grace. As we give thought to verse 15 in the beginning of this section, even though it still has to do with Naaman, the Puritan Anglican Puritan Joseph Hall wrote, Naaman was too wise to think that neither the water had cured him nor the man. He saw a divine power working in both, such as he vainly sought from his heathen deities. With the heart, therefore, he believes, with the mouth, he confesses, paraphrasing somewhat or at least referencing Romans chapter 10. Clearly, what Hall is saying and what the text tells us is that the author of these events is God himself. And since we begin with Naaman the Syrian, the author of this healing is God himself. Now God uses means, and so the prophet has uh, a role to perform, a function to perform, uh, and even the water itself. Here is a pagan Syrian, with no interest in what we might call the gospel or the grace of God or salvation. And here is a prophet who acts, and here is water, but the water has no magical significance at all. It's the very thing, or these are the very things that God himself uses. And as we'll come to see, that's probably the reason why Elisha refuses to take a gift from Naaman. In order that there might be no confusion whatsoever at all. That the water wasn't magical, that Elisha Elisha had not waved a, a magic wand, so to speak, and one way or the other, and that something like that had taken place. Now, again, as I've said, there are two parts to this whole chapter. Well, actually, there are two parts to just the section that we have read. The healing of Naaman takes place in the first 14 verses. The first thing that we're going to see this afternoon is Naaman's consecration, his devotion, his commitment to the God of who has saved him and something of Elisha's concession, not because of weakness, but rather because of human circumstances. And we'll come to that in just a few moments. So his consecration in the context of concession that is granted to him. And then secondly, the condemnation of Gehazi, Elisha's servant. Now the common denominator is faith, or the lack of faith, and also the matter of leprosy. There is the healing of Naaman from leprosy, and the harm done to Gehazi with leprosy. And given that this is, the Old Testament, you might have expected the very reverse. That Naaman would have been sent packing. He's not a child of the covenant. And uh, even though he comes with the the blessing of the king and uh, even bearing uh, gifts, as it were, still he is not a child of the covenant we saw this morning. What that meant even for Saul, who became the apostle Paul. And so Naaman is healed, and Gehazi, who has served thus far, has served well, is now condemned. The passage turns everything on its head, and everything being turned on its head has to do with the grace of God. Healing for one, least expected, harm to the other, in which you might have expected God's blessing. And so we have on the one hand the maintenance of grace or faith, the function of faith by grace, and the failure or malfunction of the same. The appearance of faith where least expected and the failure or the absence of faith where we would have expected it. So instead of the occasional nine points or 13 points or whatever, I have only two this afternoon. I believe it'll take the whole time to just do two, but there you have it. Okay, two things that we want to see this afternoon. First of all, Naaman's confession. Naaman's conviction based upon his confession of faith. Now, he says all the right things. He says a glorious thing, actually, in verse 15, and we'll come to that in just a moment once again. But we face three problems in unraveling this text, verses 15 through verse 19. First of all, there's the problem of soil, the problem of dirt. How do we explain his wanting to take some dirt from Israel back home to Syria? After all, sacrifices were offered in Jerusalem alone at the tabernacle and later at the temple. So there's the problem of soil or the problem of dirt that we need to resolve as best we can. And then there is what I've called the problem of space. That is the problem of this duty that he feels incumbent upon him. Going into the temple of Rimmon when he is now a believer in the one true God, he says that very thing in verse 15. And then the problem of sanction. That is the problem of Elisha's response to matters that might on the surface especially appear to us to be so troublesome. Elisha doesn't address them, but merely says, go in peace. And that's more than just a goodbye or a farewell. Um, It's a traditional um, Hebrew um, send-off, but we ought not to think that this is merely just a a send-off, the equivalent of, of goodbye. There's something more here. Go in peace. We'll come back to this, but it's the peace of reconciliation. Peace with God. Sins have been forgiven, and he's been healed. And so let's work our way through this, verses 15 through 20. First of all, remember the subject who is in view. He's a Syrian. He's an outlier or an outsider. He's not an Israelite, and so there would be no expectation that he would experience the saving grace and forgiveness of God. His station was that, secondly, was that he was somewhat of Uh, was of of some significance and importance. He was an assistant to the king, it would appear. And uh, so he's a military officer. We'll meet him later in the book of 2 Kings as well. But he was a military officer and he was of some significance. So he was not merely an adjutant that is assigned to another military officer, but he seemed to be at the head of the heap, or at least uh, at least close to that. Second Kings chapter seven verses two and verse 17. Make reference to him as well, and this whole business of, of, the, of the king leaning upon his arm, in the, um, in the temple of this false god. Thirdly, we notice the statement that he makes and uh, the body language that we discover in the context. He makes this great confession of faith. And you have to admit that it's, that it's absolutely superior. I mean, it's absolutely glorious. He returns to the man of God He and all of his company, and he stood before him and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. And then he asks to leave a present, coming back to that in a moment. There's no other God. He's he's no longer a polytheist, if he had been. He's a monotheist, and he recognizes there's only one God, and he confesses him as his God. And then in verse 21, when uh, Gehazi comes to him and they have this conversation about the present and all of the rest, of it, he gets off his horse. In other words, he acknowledges the superiority or the greatness, not so much Gehazi's, but of the prophet whom he represents. In other words, Naaman does not exchange one national god for another, but he sees something special in Jehovah. Here is a man who is truly converted. He refers to himself as your servant five times in verses 15 through 19. Fourthly, we see something of his sincerity. He asks to take back a certain amount of earth, of Israelite property with him. We could criticize him for thinking he could offer sacrifices as they're offered in Jerusalem, just anywhere. But it would seem that this request reflects a sensitivity and is something of a testimony. This earth, Israeli or Israel earth, is a sign and monument of the God of Israel may not know this, but Lafayette, who helped George Washington so much, a Frenchman in the Revolutionary War, when he resigned and went back to France, asked for enough earth to be buried, enough American soil, because he had become, in heart, an American. And I suspect that something like this is what's going on here. It's actually a mark of devotion, a confirmation of his faith. Fifthly, there's the supplication, this prayer request for pardon. What do we make of this? Was Is this an anticipated act of veneration, personal devotion to this pagan God? Or is it something else? And I believe it's something else. He's not asking for pardon, if you will, in his personal capacity now as a believer, but in his official capacity as this administrative assistant or whatever his title was to the king. And you find it in other places, and we'll see it later in 2 Kings, that as the king would enter the house of his God, he would lean in humility upon someone who was below him, but very high in the pecking order of things. So he doesn't come as a suppliant, but he comes as a servant, as a servant to the king with no choice. He can't go back home. If he does go back home, of course, he goes as an officer in the military. And he must take orders. And so he's not praying for the past, as some have suggested. Forgive me for the sins of my past when I've done this, because he's already been forgiven. He's not praying for the present because he's not in Syria yet. And so um, it's something in anticipated but neither as he anticipates the future is it to be seen as compromise. And it's very easy for us to see that, undoubtedly, especially as Americans. This indulgence was rooted in a good conscience as he faced this future Um, vocational duty or responsibility. Joseph Hall wrote, if he must go into the house of that idol, it shall be as a servant, not as a suppliant, that is someone who is worshiping. His duty to his master shall carry him, not his devotion to his master's God. If his master go to worship there, not he. And John Mayer, who was a reformed Anglican in the late 16th, early 17th century, said, it gave the appearance that what Naaman did in the temple of Rimmon was without any respect to the idol and only out of respect to his master. And simply to be present at idolatry for some other end without any way supporting this sacrilegious act is not to be censured as a sin. Mayer says, Hall says, he's given permission to perform his office. Not permission to worship but permission to do his work and to fulfill his calling. Now, sixthly, notice what we might call then the substantiation of this view or this sanction go in peace. Here is a word of blessing. Dale Ralph Davis says, Naaman not only lost his leprosy that day at the Jordan, he lost his paganism as well. And this is clear to recap from his attitude, his confession, his resolution, and sensitivity. God's work leaves clear evidence. Some have... Unjustly, John Peter Lange says, found in the request that he might take away a load of earth and also in the prayer that he might be forgiven for prostration in the house of Rimmon, signs that his faith was still wavering, undecided, and weak. It rather, he says, shows that he had a tender conscience which desired to avoid an appearance of denying Jehovah and which was forced to speak out its scruples and have them quieted. Such scruples would have occurred to one who was wavering between the service, would not have occurred to one who was wavering between service of God and service of the gods. And I think that's actually what the text is telling us. This was a concession to him because of his calling and the work that he had been given and for which he had no real alternative. Now, I don't want to say too much about this. Obviously, great care needs to be taken in in making that kind of decision. But it might have been nice as a passing reference, to have had this text before us when we went through all of that division over COVID. That's all I'll say. Here is confession, concession in view of his work, not a compromise of his faith. Now we come to condemnation and we come to the second part of our text in verses 20 through 27. Roger Ellsworth writes in his little volume on 2 Kings, he says, The issue of deception comes out in the account of Gehazi. We have in him an example of one who appeared to belong to God, but did not. In other words, Naaman was the outsider who came in, while Gehazi was the insider who went out. Gehazi went out because he never understood the grace of God. Again, a number of things to be said. First of all, notice the disposition of this man, his person. Who was he? Well, he was a servant to Elisha, and we've seen that before. And he's done well up to this point. He has served the cause of God and of the prophet, um, his Lord, as it were, not in that absolute sense, but certainly the one who uh, issued orders to him. He was the servant. And it was Elisha who had refused to receive anything from Naaman. So you have the disposition of this man and you have the donation of Naaman or at least the offer of such. And thirdly, you have the decision of the prophet who refuses to take a gift. Now, it was customary in the ancient world for those who benefited from um, the ministry of a prophet for those individuals to offer the prophet a gift and so it was customary for Naaman to do what he offered to do but it's interesting that Elisha not only refuses to take the gift But in replying to Gehazi or to give the reason, he says in verse 26, uh, um, yeah, is it? Well, let me just read the whole verse. And he said unto him, uh, what or went not my heart with thee? Elisha saying, I knew what you had done because my heart went with you. When the man turned from his chariot to meet thee, is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen, men servants and maid servants. Is this the right time to receive a gift? Which suggests that other times um, may well be the right time to receive them. And uh, obviously, a, a prophet needs to eat as well. And he didn't receive uh, a salary out of uh, the Israelite. Uh, bank or economy, and so they depended upon the gifts offered to them. But he says, is this the right time to receive a gift? What does he mean? Well, I think what he means is this, that Naaman could not and would not be able to give a gift behaving as if he contributed to his healing. See the connection? The gift would possibly be misunderstood. And what Naaman needs to realize is that this was all of God. In the same way that sinners today need to realize that salvation is all of God. It's all of Christ. It's all of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and we contribute nothing whatsoever at all to our salvation except for the pile of sin. This was all of God. Elisha could not risk a distortion of what had happened. And so he is determined not to receive a gift. Gehazi's sin was a theological sin, a theological misstep, a theological misunderstanding. God needs to be seen as a giver and not a taker. The pagan gods were the pagan gods were takers rather than givers. And Naaman needs to see that God is a giver and not a taker. Which, again, points us in the direction of Of Galatians chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 where Paul says if if anyone comes with another gospel, it's to be rejected. And so Gehazi concludes this is a mistake. And so he goes after the giver in order to receive a gift i were three things about his mistake very briefly. First of all, the pursuit. He chases after Naaman. Think about it. Syria beckoned him. Israel no longer pleased him. The petition that he makes is rather modest in many ways, certainly compared with verse 5, where this enormous amount is sent with Naaman. But you'll also notice the perjury or the the lying. Gehazi violates the third, the ninth, and the tenth commandment. Bears false witness against God. He lies, the ninth commandment and the tenth commandment. He's greedy and he's covetous. And so what he receives justly is retribution, judgment for possessing a false faith. And the judgment falls upon him and upon any future generation that would proceed from him. He went away in judgment. Sin clung to him even as leprosy did. He lost his post, his health. He is marked out as a sinner. John Peter Lange writes, The leprosy of Naaman, in verse 27, became the leprosy of Gehazi. As Naaman Naaman was a living monument of the saving might and grace of Jehovah, so Gehazi was a monument of the retributive justice of the Holy One in Israel. A living warning and threat for the entire people. Gehazi certainly missed judged the situation and obscured the grace, the saving grace of God in the salvation from Jehovah upon Naaman. One writer has said, Naaman was more faithful to his new Lord than Gehazi was to his. Well, three things uh, to leave you with. First of all, impressions can be misleading. It's easy to obscure grace. It's easy to believe somehow, somewhere, something can contribute to the grace of God. And that's the point to be made, I think, with, again, with Elisha's refusal to accept a gift. To do so might possibly suggest that Naaman, who could contribute to all kinds of things and good causes, I suppose, if he was so inclined, has now contributed in some way to this blessing that has fallen upon upon him, and nothing could be further from the truth. seems to me that the two texts from today, the one this morning and this one this afternoon, dovetail nicely, both of them having to do with the grace of God and the grace of God Certainly in Jesus Christ. God is not a taker. God is a giver. And He gives and bestows salvation upon guilty sinners. So to deny grace in any way at all is to face the judgment. Of God. That's a strong statement and a serious statement, and perhaps a scary statement at some level. To compromise the grace of God is to, is to face the judgment of God. The second thing to note from here, uh, from the text, is that there is a difference between concession and compromise. And it's not always easy to identify. And often, people will want to identify it for us. And if we don't agree, then of course we face their ire. There's a difference between a concession that is granted in a difficult situation for which a person really has no choice. In this case, it was a part of his job, a part of his official duty. And conscience could not enter in to the extent that he was not permitted to fulfill his calling. There's a difference. In fact, I think Paul Highlights this at least to some degree in Romans chapter 14 when he speaks of an individual standing, each one standing or falling before his Lord. Third observation or thought is Are you in peace? Again, there are people listening to this, hopefully, uh, outside of our congregation on sermon audio. And so the question is raised, are you in peace? Not just are you at peace. In other words, having some sense of inner tranquility that can be just mistaken. But are you in peace? And that's how Elisha sends Naaman away. Go in peace. I'm not your judge. Neither is anybody else. Before God, you stand or fall. And his confession is what stood the test. Joseph Hall wrote, How much better had been a light purse and a homely coat with a sound body and a clear soul. And John Peter Lange says, without faith there is no confession and without confession there is no faith. And perhaps if there are still questions in your mind and uh, they are in my own but I did the best I could. I think Roger Ellsworth says it well. And let this be the parting thought this afternoon. The thing we must not do is to let the difficulties of interpretation obscure Naaman's genuine desire to worship God. A desire which shows that he had come to faith. Where there is no such desire, there is no faith. What are we to make then of those who claim to know God, but habitually absent themselves from worship? Are they not terribly deceived? The point he's making is don't lose the forest for the trees. Don't lose what the text tells us about Naaman's true faith for the obscurity, or at least as some would see, obscure aspects of the text. May we know something of that kind of faith that stirred and stimulated Naaman the Syrian. Father in heaven, we we do bow before you and we thank you again for a reliable text for all of your word. Its entirety is reliable and we believe it. And may we see through the forest for the trees and see what true faith really looks like as opposed to a profession which is little more than a profession and ultimately a false faith. Grant unto us that assurance that we have been able to go in peace. For we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.